0: Hey, if you have a Bible, why don't you open it to First Corinthians chapter 10? If you don't didn't bring one, there's one in the pew in front of you. And we're going to page, I think it's 1782 or 3. Um, and uh, as I get ready to read that, um, let me say a couple things if you're new or a visitor. Um, we, uh, I do what's called expositional preaching here at High Point, which means I go through— Bible passages and books of the Bible, so I didn't pick this passage for this morning. It's just next. The book of first Corinthians is a letter written by the Apostle Paul, um, one of the great first missionaries of the church, to a church in a little town— well, not a little town, a city called Corinth um, in ancient Greece, right there, and um, to try to help them clear up a bunch of problems they had in understanding what it means to be a Christian. And so the difficulties that they had are very similar to the ones we still have today, because they're related to human nature, and that really just hasn't changed, and neither has the Savior. So let's read together. I'm going to start in chapter 10. This is page 1782, and I'm going to start in, on verse 14. Therefore, my dear friends, flee from idolatry. I speak to sensible people. Judge for yourselves what I say. Is not the cup of thanksgiving for which we give thanks a participation in the blood of Christ? And is not the bread we break a participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one loaf, we who are many are one body. For we all partake in the one loaf. Consider the people of Israel, do not those who eat the sacrifices participate in the altar? Do I mean then that a sacrifice offered to an idol is anything or that an idol is anything? No. But the sacrifices of pagans are offered to demons, not to God. And do not I don't want you to be participants with demons. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons too. You cannot have a part in both the Lord's table and... And the table of demons. Are we trying to arouse the Lord's jealousy? Are we stronger than he? Everything is permissible, but not everything is beneficial. Everything is permissible, but not everything is constructive. Nobody should seek his own good, but the good of others. Eat anything sold in the meat market without raising question of conscience, for the earth is the Lord's and everything in it. And if some believer, unbeliever invites you to a meal, and you want to go, eat whatever is put before you without raising questions of conscience. But if anyone says to you, this has been offered in sacrifice, then do not eat it, both for the sake of the man who told you and for conscience' sake. The other men's conscience, I mean not yours. For why should my freedom be judged by another's conscience? If I take part in a meal with thankfulness, why am I denounced because of something I thank God for? So whether you eat or drink, or whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. Do not cause anyone to stumble, whether Jews, Greeks, or the church of God, even as I try to please everyone and everybody in every way. For I am not seeking my own good, but the good of many, so that they may be saved. Follow my example as I follow the example of Christ." Now, I'm going to talk a little bit about verses 23 to the end of that, but for the most part, I want to I talk about verses 14 to 22, okay? So let's start off with a thought experiment, okay? You're hoping we were going to start off with a thought experiment, right? Okay, I want you to evaluate four things. One, a proposal. Is the proposal A, a romantic and loving gesture, designed to bind two people in love forever in marriage, or is it a power play of possession of people who want to control each other? A or B? A or B? Number two, sacrifice. Is sacrifice, A, a noble gesture motivated by love? or B, the action of a sucker? A, a noble gesture motivated by love, or B, the action of a sucker? Do you have your answer? Okay. Number three, a law. What is a law? Is it A, a path of the good life and protection from evil and pain? Is it a path to the good life and protection from evil and pain, shared from one—shared for a group, or B, is it a restrictive manipulation to control others? What is a law? Not, a, not good laws or bad laws, just what is a law in general? A path to the good life and protection from evil and pain, or B, a restrictive manipulation to control others? You got your answer? Okay, good. Lastly, jealousy. What is Jealousy. Is jealousy, A, a healthy response when one's rightful role in a relationship is threatened? Or B, a neurosis of overbearing and possessive people? I'm not talking about an act of jealousy you've experienced. I mean the thing that is jealousy. Is it A, a healthy response when one's rightful role in a relationship is threatened? Or B, a neurosis of overbearing and possessive people? Do you want me to tell you what the right answers were? You see, strictly logically speaking, whether you answered all A or all B, logically speaking, both are equally as reasonable. They're both equally logically valid. Now, if you answered some A's and some B's, I'd I'd have some issues with consistency of your logic. But generally speaking, whichever side you favored— logic does not dictate whether you are right or wrong. Given a certain set of assumptions, you could answer all A. Given another set of assumptions, you could answer all B, and you would be equally as reasonable and scientific. And you see, that's the whole issue of the whole discussion from chapter 8 through chapter 11 in first Corinthians. How do you think about Who you are, therefore, the meaning of what you do, the moral status of what you choose, and what nobility and honor and humility and goodness look like. And you see, in this passage, what the apostle is basically getting at is, which he starts in chapter 8, verses 1 to 3, is there is a kind of logic related to our freedom. What are we going to do with our life that has to do with our own selfishness? And when we use that, there is a—we could justify anything, and we can be cynical about everything, and we will find that we are free to do whatever we want by that logic, and we will be perfectly consistent in the terror of that cold logic. And it will form our identity, it will shape our belongings, and it will solidify our loyalties, and we will become that kind of person. But as he argued in chapter eight verses one to three, that is why all knowledge, particularly knowledge of what we think our freedom is for, has to be put together with love. That knowledge without love produces ignorance because of the kind of being we are that does the knowing. If we weren't humans and we were just sheer logic machines, maybe knowledge would produce knowledge. But because we're sinful human beings, prone to pride and self justification, knowledge produces ignorance. Unless it is tempered by something that pulls out the pathogen. <clears throat> and Paul says that is love, particularly love as defined by the Savior. There is a kind of logic of love, but here's the thing about the logic of love. It is not something logic can prove. That's the whole problem, right? Why is the love shared between a husband and a wife logically valid? Why does it matter, logically speaking? Can you get from A implies B— and B implies C to A implies C? Is it just a sheer syllogism? No, there's a logical jump. It's partly intuitive, and it's, 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 it's a different, it's not the same kind of sheer, this proves this. If you have two, you have two, you put two and two together, you count them up, you have four. It doesn't work that way. It's something that you have to fundamentally accept, and then that dynamic helps you think through things. But it's not something you can just say, A is B. And so therefore, within every human heart is either the fundamental acceptance or the fundamental rejection of the dictates of love, and that fundamentally transforms how you think about everything. One of the things that's interesting about this is when Paul tells them to think— within the parameters of love, to use love in their logic, he never asks them to put aside their reason. He doesn't see it as a be a mystic or be a logical person. They're not—it's not a dichotomy to him. In fact, in verse 15, right as he starts this passage, he says, I'm speaking to sensible, literally to—I'm th- speaking to thinking people. You're thinkers. You think you have knowledge. The whole book, up to this, po- this point, is about how the Corinthians think they have so much knowledge and they live in a philosophical culture, and he says, listen— I know you're thinkers, so listen to what I'm saying about love, and you think it through. And you judge mentally for yourself whether or not what I'm saying is right. But what he's arguing is, is that accepting the relational logic of love is necessary to think like a Christian until you start thinking in terms of love in a relationship to everything else you know, you can't think like a Christian. It's possible that you might be one in a very confused state, but you can't think or really act consistently like a Christian until your knowledge fundamentally relates to love and what love dictates and what love teaches. And because of that, What we have to recognize we have to accept as Christians is that we have to accept the identity of belonging. That's what love dictates. That your identity is not just based in your logical freedoms. It is based in who you belong to and what you are. And that you can't get away from that. The minute you believe in Jesus, really the minute you're born— your identity is mostly made not up, not up of the po- logically possible uses of your hypothetical freedoms. It, your identity is mostly made up to the web of relationships you exist in that can't be denied. The minute you're born, you're a child of a parent. You'll never not be that. At some point, a lot of people become a husband or a wife. You sometimes become a parent. You, you exist in a, in a city or a, or a town. You're among a people. There are very few hermits right? All of us exist among a people or within a city. There's a sub-community we're a part of, and we are within this web of relationships, and those web of relationships have dictates on our identity, and they form us. They form our loyalties. They give us our senses of belonging, and they dictate our identity. And all of those are perfectly valid. And love demands, causes them to demand certain things of us, and they do limit our hypothetical freedoms. That is what love dictates. And once you realize that, it is going to affect your freedom, isn't it? And if you, reali- if you realize that, if you see that our identity, who we are, particularly who we are in Jesus, is bound up with our belonging, our belonging to Jesus and our belonging to the things that belong to him, what that means is, that what we do has an enormous amount to do with what our faith means and whether or not we have any. And that's why Paul can say that the point of this passage is to flee idolatry. Why does he go back and talk about the ancient Israelites and and all this other stuff from the early early part of chapter 10? Why do that? Well, because you see, in his mind— the th- it's not enough just to run to Jesus. You need to realize you have to flee idolatry. Well, why? I mean, isn't the opposite of faith skepticism or non-faith? Not in the Bible. I mean, if you want to have a cultural discussion on what it looks like to believe in Christianity or not believe in Christianity, then in some way, for some people, they'll, they feel like the opposite of Christian faith for them is skepticism or atheism. But in the Bible, that's not the opposite of faith in Jesus. The opposite of faith in God— is idolatry. It's to put your faith in something else, which is logically much more complete and scientific, right? If faith is trusting in the one true God, then the opposite is trusting in anything else or attempting to trust in nothing, which really makes you just trust in you. I mean, what is humanism? Atheistic self-trust. It's one of the philosophies of atheism, right? So one of the things we need to recognize then is it's, it's not enough to just say, oh, who knows how long I'm going to preach for now. It's, um, it's not enough to just say, I have faith. It's not enough to just go to Jesus. He says, listen, you also have to free flee from idolatry. Because what is idolatry? Idolatry is unfaith. That's what it is. Idolatry is not faith. It is the unfaith. It is, it is the opposite of faith. It is to, instead of trust in Christ or in God, to be your provider, savior, lover, the one you belong to, the one who fortifies your identity and pulls together your loyalties, it is to trust in anything else. It is unfaith. And therefore, every Christian who understands what they are— that is, a hu- someone made in God's image, but prone to wander and fail in faith, knows that they have to not only run to Jesus, but they need to flee unfaith. That is, they need to run from idolatry, flee idolatry, and run to God. They have to do both of those things. That's why in the passage before he said, be careful if you think you stand. Why? Because, why? Because he says, if you think you stand, you might just fall. Right? That is— you might not be fleeing fast enough from unfaith or idolatry. And then he turns to temptation. He says, listen, when you're in a temptation, what should you do? God will provide a way, so run to God. But then he's just, he's concerned. It's not clear enough. Listen, guys, you have to flee from unfaith. Now, to understand this passage really well, we got to, we've got to look at a couple of things. I want to look at three backgrounds, because some people don't know the historical background of this, and they deserve to know it, so they can understand the scripture. And then I want to make two points from the passage. So quick, three things that— um, three, three historical background things you need to know to really understand this passage. The first is what Greek life was like in relationship, because there's all this talk about eating meat, right? And you're kind of like, really? That's what we're going to talk about? But you see, in, in Greco-Roman culture, in their cities, they had temples everywhere to the gods. They're just all over the place. There were 15 or 20 of them in Corinth. And so if you were going to kill a pig, you wouldn't just kill a pig. Why, why do that? Why? You can make the pig do double duty, right? You can take the pig to the temple, and you can sacrifice it to one of the gods, but the, the temple doesn't get the meat. You still get to keep the meat. It's the, it's the slaying of the animal that's the sacrifice. So then you take the meat home, and you can cook it, or whatever. And so therefore— huge numbers of animals in Greek cities were actually sacrificed in one temple or another. And they either ended up back in somebody's house for dinner, or they ended up in the meat market to be bought by people, or they ended up in these temple feasts. So in any of the pagan temples, part of worship wasn't like you didn't sing songs and listen to sermons, okay? That's a distinctively Christian thing. Um, worship in other religions is different. And one of the ways worship is done in, in paganism was that there would be a big feast, and oftentimes there was all kinds of other not particularly godly things involved in that, depending on the pagan god you're worshiping. But many of them had some kind of feast where there's a big meal and there was always meat because it came from the sacrificial altars. And so there's essentially three questions that come up in this passage. The Christians are saying, okay, wait a second. If all this meat is sacrificed to idols, what am, what am I allowed to do and what am I not allowed to do? Am I allowed to actually go to the feast at the temple where all the best food is? in the pagan temple itself, am I allowed to buy meat at the meat market, knowing that there's a really good chance it was sacrificed to an idol? And three, what if I go over to a neighbor's house, and there the food that they serve has been sacrificed to an idol? What should I do? What's faithful? You see? And those are the three questions that Paul's answering here. And the answer isn't just, don't eat anything. The see the answer he gives, he works out in relationship to the logic of love. He doesn't say, Oh, oh no, you, uh, he just says, Listen, think about your identity and who you belong to and go from there. Okay, so secondly, is in this passage he talks about he talks about the people at the temple. Remember, he says in um in, in verse 18, consider the people of Israel do not those who eat at the sacrifices participate at the altar? Okay, so what he's referring to is in the Old Testament, there was a a sacrifice called the fellowship offering, that when when God gave people in abundance, what they would do is they would take some of it, and they would offer it in thanks to God, because that's who they believed it was from. God is their provider. They belong to him, right? But it wasn't just, it wasn't like the pagan temple, where you would kill the animal, then you take it home, eat it with whoever you want. If you brought that to offer to God, you, you had, it, it was then now holy. You couldn't just do whatever you wanted with it. So if you were going to give a fellowship offering, you took everybody you wanted to be at the meal, you brought them with you to the temple. They all had to be ceremonially clean because you were going to eat with God. You went into the temple, the sacrifice was sacrificed, some was offered to God, some was given to the priest, and the rest was eaten in the temple because the meal was irreducibly sacred. And it was with God as well as with people, because that was the nature of the fellowship. It was a fellowship offering. And the fellowship was with the people, with God. And you see, when you fellowship with God, what does that mean? It means it's no longer, it's no longer anything but sacred. You got to eat it in the temple, with people who are ceremonially clean, and it has to be offered the right way, and the right parts have to be offered to God. And if any of it touches anything that's unclean, you can't eat it, and it has to be eaten that day. And there's these certain regulations. Why? Because it's sacred. Because you are fellowshipping with God, and in God's parameters, and because everybody in this meal belongs to Him. It's fundamentally their identity. Right? And then the third thing you need to know is the reason we're talking so much about meals is because in the ancient world, people saw something that we don't see very well. And that is, is that eating is one of the most intimate actions of human beings. In fact, more universal human intimacy is had in the kitchen than in the bedroom. Because we eat a lot more. And and, and eating is an intimate experience where you, you don't have people at your table you don't want there. That's why, that's why people used to eat as families, and that's, and that's why it's a good idea to do so. Because that is an intimate time. It's a time when you're all sharing in provision together. That's why it's, it's good to pray at meals, because you can eat it like a fellowship offering— it's what God has provided for you. You're eating it together. You're eating it out of thankfulness to God. Why? And wh- where can some of the best discussions happen? Right there. You're intentionally, why, why do you sit at the table rather than in front of the TV? So you're all facing each other. So you can talk. Why do kids have to ask to be excused? Because it's a fellowship time and you don't just walk in and walk out of that. That that's that's why. And listen, you're not in sin if you don't do certain of these things I've mentioned. All I'm saying is one of the reasons why some families have structured dinner times is because they understand some of the things the ancients understood. That eating together is extraordinarily intimate and it's where loyalties and identity and belonging is forged and therefore what better way to worship? You see? And so there's, there was this parallel between pagan worship, where eating was connected, and worship of God, where eating was connected, except the two meals were very different. So let's look at the two things then. The first thing to recognize from this passage is that the logic of love says, listen, you are vitally connected to Jesus and other Christians— if you if, it's not a, it's not a relationship of sheer logic it is a relationship of belonging that is dictated by love and it functions in the categories of nobility honor and morality not in the not in the functional categories of math or physics listen to the passage and, and look at how often the words, now this is just the way they tr- decided to translate it, but the words participation and partaking are in this passage. It is not the cup of thanksgiving, that is the cup of communion, for which we give thanks a participation in the blood of Christ? And is not the bread that we break a participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one loaf, we who are many are one body, for we all partake in the one loaf. Consider the people of Israel. Do not those who eat its sacrifices participate at the altar? Do I mean that a sacrifice offered to an idol is anything or that an idol is anything? No, but the sacrifices of pagans are offered to demons, not to God. And I don't want you to be participants with demons. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons, too. You cannot have a part in both. One of the words that Christians sometimes say because they like to quote Greek even though they don't like to study it is the word koinonia, which is the word used a number of times in this passage. There's actually a couple different words. There's the noun and the verb form, but it's the same root. Um, and it, it's, it's the New Testament word that refers to connectedness or fellowship or unity or communion with each other. And it's based on a shared identity. It's, it's a fairly specific word that, that, says, that says basically, we are we are sharers of one identity and have a very close fellowship or communion with each other. It's hard to come up with a modern metaphor for this because we're so disconnected in our culture. But that's the word used again and again in this passage, that there is this union. And the, and the, the problem is, is once that union exists, it, it dictates things. It dictates identity, it dictates belonging, and it dictates Loyalty. And it's something that you can't, you can't freedom, self-centered freedom logic your way out of, right? You can't say, well, why, sh- why should I have to say something respectful to my parents if they're not treating me the way I want to be treated? That's the wrong logic. Fairness logic doesn't apply. Belonging logic repli- applies. Love logic applies. The fundamental relationship of a parent to a child is a child is supposed to show a parent respect, Period. It's not—you it's, see, the other logic—you can, you can ask for certain rights, but the fundamental relationship of belonging, loyalty, in that relationship— love dictates something that selfish freedom logic doesn't allow you, even if you think it's fair. Love isn't fair. Love is sacrificial. That's its fundamental dynamic. And to try to pull that out of it and stick in something like fairness destroys it. You, there's no such thing as fair love. There's no such thing. There's no such thing as equal love. Lo- you're you are loving if you put in everything, regardless of what the other person. There is no economic relationship. It is or it isn't. And so you can't say, "Well, I give fifty, and he gives 50 that's just a recipe for divorce and self, and hatred and and anger and resentment and no you are not loving if they love you you're loving if you love 100% and you love sacrificially and you propose and you and in certain cases you're not loving if you're not jealous because there's a relationship of belonging and loyalty and identity right and when somebody attacks a relationship of love that is supposed to be self-sacrificial to the two, it is a breach of loyalty, it is a breach of belonging, and it is a breach of identity. And if that doesn't do anything to you, you're not in it. Because it should feel like an attack on your identity, an attack on your belonging, and an attack on your loyalties. That doesn't mean you act like an idiot. It just means you should feel it. And so when, when you come to the bottom of this thing, there is, there is a logic that is selfish that says, what does it matter? Why can't I do whatever I want? Right? I mean, think about the things you want to do that the Bible doesn't explicitly say are sinful, but you've heard Christians say you shouldn't do. Or there's one of the five voices inside you that says maybe you shouldn't do it. There's two logics that you can use. You can say, well, why shouldn't I? Well, why shouldn't I? I don't like my spouse. Why shouldn't I? I, I, fe- I feel like I deserve this or that. Why shouldn't I? There's, there is the why shouldn't I lo- logic of selfish freedom. And here's, here's the—just don't bother even asking yourself the question. Just do it. You'll save yourself the psychological lying to yourself because you're going to do it. The minute you ask the question, why shouldn't I, you're going to do it. So just quit asking yourself that question. The minute you say, well, why shouldn't I? You're thinking through the logic of selfish freedom. The minute you ask that question, you're going to do whatever you feel like doing, so just do it and stop. Don't go through the process of hardening your heart and lying to yourself. Just go sin. Or use a totally different logic. What is my identity? Who do I belong to? And what are my loyalties? Who am I? And therefore, what does honor and nobility dictate given who I am and who I'm related to. So you see, can you go to a a pagan feast in a a pagan temple? Or, you know, if you're a college student, why not go to the, like, super debauched frat party? Why shouldn't you? Everything there is fundamentally good. Everything is—everything on the earth is the Lord's, right? Women, men— Alcohol, couches, electrical sockets, all that stuff belongs to the Lord, right? Belongs to the Lord. And why should I, why conscience, be judged for something I thank God for? Like bikinis, right? Why not? Why not? Why shouldn't I? You can just find anything. Why sh- we're go- there's a pagan temple. They are worshiping another God, and it is the community of unfaith. Their loyalties, their belonging, and their identity is unfaith and they're worshiping another god, but why shouldn't I? Right? Just go sin or think out the gospel. The minute you take that cup and you drink it, you are a participant in the blood and life of the divine Savior. And when you take that bread and you eat it, that one body of Christ creates a body of Christ into which you are woven and to which you belong, into which you owe your loyalty, into which you deserve your belonging, and in which it defines your identity. And then what should you do? What does honor and loyalty and truth dictate? Well, in the case of the pagan temple, Paul says, it dictates you don't go because it is a celebration of unfaith, and it is treason against your Savior. I don't care how good the barbecue is. But when it comes to eating in a buddy's house, or buying meat in the market, doesn't matter. Why? It's the same meat. It's the same meat. Why? It's a question of, belonging. It's a question of identity and loyalty. Your loyalty and your identity isn't being challenged by a ham chop that you can buy for three forty-nine dollars a pound. You are still who you are, and you are living consistent with what you are when you buy that. And it doesn't matter what it was offered to, but the minute your identity and your belonging and your loyalty is questioned or challenged either overtly by going to a pagan celebration, or in a buddy's house who's a pagan and goes, hey, that was sacrificed to an idol. What are you going to do? At that moment, the, the question of honor and of nobility comes in because of who you are and what you are and what your identity is. And at that moment, you have to say, well, then I'm not eating it. Pass the doll. The second is, to, Second is idolatry connects you with a community and beings of unfaith. Idolatry connects you with the community and beings of unfaith. Idolatry has its own fellowship, its own identity, its own belongings, and its own loyalties. In idolatry, whether it's the pagan worshiper or God, or if it's the worship of your phone, or if it's the worship of your freedom, or if it's the worship of your youth or smarts, or accomplishments, whatever kind of idolatry it is, that kind of idolatry has its own religious trappings. It has its own identity. It has its own belongings. It has its own loyalties. It has all of its own stuff, and it has its own fellowship. And the more you fellowship with that God and that God's people, the more you will be like them in identity, belonging, and loyalty. Listen to the verse. Do I mean that a sacrifice offered to an idol is anything, or that an idol is anything? No. No. But the sacrifices of pagans are offered to demons, not to God, and I do not want you to be participants with demons. Now think about what he's saying. You see, um, what he's saying is the the sacrifice itself, the sacrificing or the idol, they're not magic okay? Zeus isn't going to jump out of there, or your success isn't going to jump out of there and possess you. And if you eat the meat, it's not like there's some kind of poison in it that's going to like poison your soul. It's, it's not magic. It's not the raw logic of science. It's not—it can't be discerned through selfish logics of freedom. It is a relatedness thing. The idol—the sacrifice itself can't hurt you, but the idol sacrifice cannot help but have an effect on you. And it is that effect. It is the communion of it. It is the identity in it, and it is the loyalty moved towards it that will hurt you. And that's why, even though the idol is nothing and the sacrifice is nothing, you need to be careful and you need to flee idolatry. Does that make sense? One of the things that we have to look at when we look at this passage is, you've got to get past the emotional reaction you have to the concept demons, okay? Um, We have been intimidated into rejecting a caricature of demons, okay? You know, you make a straw man, and then you tell people they're stupid for believing in the straw man, and people go, oh, maybe I shouldn't do that. And we've got to get past that um, because— Some secular people will just fundamentally ridicule the idea of spiritual personal beings of unfaith. They just ridicule that. But then there are some Christians um, that act as though the entire Bible is a handbook on demonology. And um, the New Testament doesn't take either of those views. Um, For example, in, in Paul's letters, he absolutely affirms the existence of spiritual persons. God is one. And if there's such thing as one spiritual person, why on earth would it be ridiculous to believe that there are many different kinds of spiritual persons? Right? If God, I mean, think about how many physical organisms there are in the world. And if, if you believe that God created the world and everything in it, then why not—why believe that there, for, it's for some reason the spiritual world must be a unified existence of one personal entity, God, and nothing else? Why couldn't God create whatever He wants, whenever He wants, long before He created the physical world? Why shouldn't there be angels and demons? Why shouldn't there be a thousand different kinds? Why shouldn't there be animals with four heads and wings with twelve eyes? Why not? Essentially, the, the disbelief in demons ultimately believes is, re- reveals a kind of incredulity towards the idea of God. God. Why should we be scared to admit that we believe not in that caricature, but in intelligent personal beings of unfaith that oppose the God that we love and the Savior that we've come to? But one of the things also to recognize is, you know, Paul only calls two things demonic in all of his letters. He wrote like two-thirds of the New Testament. And only twice does he go. you know, guys, you got to be careful. There's demons in that. Like, no kidding. There's demons in that. Here, the one I just read, and the other one is in First Timothy 4, 1 and 2 that I actually quoted last week, where it says—do I have it there? No, I don't have it there—where it says, "'The Spirit clearly says that in later times some will abandon the faith "'and follow deceiving spirits and things taught by demons. "'Such teachings come,' not directly through demons. They're, they're not—he says, "'Such teachings come through hypocritical liars,' whose consciences have been seared as with a hot iron. You see, even when he calls—let's think about this. He calls two things demonic, and neither of them are directly demonic. See, you see, one of the reasons why people um, get bent out of shape about this whole issue is because Christians seem to be calling things demonic, and— and people don't know what they mean by that. It just sounds—because when most people say that's demonic, they just mean that's really, that's really awful. That's, that's very debauched. It's essentially a moral judgment that people don't agree with. And so when we say it, it doesn't mean anything. It's just an opportunity for people to ridicule us. I mean, Christ, think about what Christians have called demonic. The Twilight movies, radical Islam, homosexuality, feng shui, Halloween, horoscopes, levitation, television, yoga, martial arts, other religions— Rock, rap, rock and rap music, and so on. Now, are, are, do some of those things have demonic influences in the way they're practiced? Probably. D- are other things just things we disapprove? Some Christians seem to disapprove of for reasons that are not explicitly taught in the Bible? Yes. Are some just horrible movies that we wish only demons had to watch? Yes. But the, the point is that in, in Scripture, there are two different kinds of demonic. The one which is by far the minority is the intentionally demonic, what we call the occult. The attempt of people to like actually, no kidding, contact demons and do that kind of thing. And that is expressly forbidden in the Old Testament and not abrogated in the New. Christians are totally forbidden from playing with the occult. Totally. Why? Because whatever you think you're playing with, there's a demon. It's just like the pagan god. Whatever spirit or thing you think you're fooling with in Wicca or in whatever you want to play with, what Paul is saying in this passage is, But you know what you're really playing with? The idol is nothing. The elemental is nothing. The wicked spirit is nothing. The helper, whatever. That's not what that is. That thing is nothing because it doesn't exist. It's just an idol. But there is a spirit behind it, a spirit that you're going to have participation and fellowship with, and that spirit is a demon. And that's why Christians and all people are expressly forbidden in Scripture from doing anything within the occult because it's intentionally demonic. But, but you see, the, that, oh, virtually everything demonic in the world, Christianly speaking, that is, what the, the beings of unfaith promote, is just everything that promotes unfaith. Everything in us and around us and to us, all of that is unfaith. And therefore, if, if we call feng shui demonic, because it's part of an Eastern mysticism related to how spirits function in That's just as demonic as my laziness of sleeping too long because I'm not disciplining myself to live out the call of God on my life because I'm letting my body and my impulses take control rather than doing what I know I'm supposed to do because of who I am. They're equally demonic. They're both actions of unfaith because everything, everything mentioned in the New Testament that is led by demons is indirectly demonic. It is the promotion of unfaith running to something else but Jesus for our provision, our identity, our loyalty, our belonging. And all of that is equally demonic. Which is why it's usually unhelpful when we publicly make statements about it. But it's also unhelpful when we privately ignore the matter. Lewis said it this way, there are two equal and opposite errors that our race can fall into about the devils. One is to disbelieve their existence. The other is to believe and to and excessive and unhealthy interest in them. Well, let's end this way. So there's three questions, right? There's three questions that that, that these people asked Paul, right? What are, well, what are the answers? Can you, can you think through the answer now? Can you go to a pagan temple? No, you can't. Why? Is the meat magically poisoned by devils, and will it possess you? No, because you can eat the same meat at the market. It's not magic. Paul isn't some ancient superstitious guy. All that, all that talk about, oh, religion, and oh, Christianity, so superstitious, heaped upon people of faith, is not true. Paul is not superstitious at all. He has no superstitious beliefs about the meat, does he? Nothing. Nothing. Has everything to do with a much more advanced psychology about human beings than we even believe in in 2012. What is this going to do to your identity, your loyalties, and your belonging? Who are you, and what are you? And then, therefore, what does honor, and truth, and, and nobility dictate? So, can you eat it in your home? Can you buy it at the market and eat it at your house? Yeah, right. Doesn't matter. Can you go over to somebody else's house and eat it? Right. So then, how how does that apply to this stuff that you're really making decisions about right now? Is that clear enough to think through whether or not you should or shouldn't be friends with that kid at school? Whether or not you should or shouldn't be part of that friend group? Whether or not you should or shouldn't stay at your job based on what you're being asked to do? Whether or not you should or shouldn't make the first move back towards your spouse? Whether or not you should or shouldn't engage in some spiritual disciplines like Bible reading or prayer or going to small group or something like that to flee idolatry and flee towards the community of Jesus that will form your identity, your loyalty, and your belonging. Right? Well, Paul is saying, he's talking about whether or not you can eat meat, but do you see how if you understand the logic of love, virtually every moral decision that is confusing ends up being relatively obvious? The question just ends up being whether or not you will run to Jesus for the provision of faith necessary in whatever temptation you've received, which just sends us back to verse 13, right? No, you haven't received any temptation that isn't normally human, but in every temptation God will provide a way if you turn to him for you to overcome it. If You're careful about thinking that you're standing or else you'll fall. If you look to God for the provision you need to run to Him out of faith, and if you flee both the community and the beings of unfaith and what you choose to be a part of, believe in, and trust in. And like verse 13 essentially says, if you choose that, you will be able to do it. God will provide what is necessary. He will pour out his spirit on you. He will show you the direction. And, And in faith, every Christian, no matter how broken your background or no matter how many times you failed, in faith, every Christian is spiritually unstoppable and morally unstoppable. And in terms of the beauty of their life, unstoppable. But not in the sheer mathematical logic of selfishness, We're not unstoppable in terms of power, in terms of acquiring money, or in beating others. We are unstoppable in the way Jesus was unstoppable. He was killable, but not killable. You could attack him and slander him, but he wouldn't turn. He'd face it, and he was who he was. And friends, that is the picture that can take you through all these things, the picture of Jesus. He is the only one who has ever stood up under every temptation rejected every pull to unfaith, and trusted in the one provider to provide everything for him. And so if you haven't put your trust and faith in him, then you should. You should do it right now. You should ask Jesus to be your Lord and King. You should, you should seek for him to define your identity, for him to be the one to whom you belong, and the one around whom your loyalties are fashioned. And whatever idol it is, that you find so attractive, whatever group of idols it is. Listen to his words. Flee. Flee. Not because the idol is something, but because fellowship, who we belong to and what we are, and what we're becoming, is everything. Let me pray as the community folks come forward. God, um, we ask for your help now as we come to this action of community and belonging and loyalty. We recognize that the little cup and the little piece of bread was really meant and was from the beginning a big feast where people ate intimately with each other. And, um, and this is just a symbol of that. And Father, but we pray that you would take this symbol and you would help it be used for us to flee from idolatry and to flee to and run to your provision of the God to whom we belong and the people through it to whom we belong. And help us to to believe and trust as we drink the cup to believe that we are participants in Christ and we belong to him and he belongs to us. And that when we eat the bread, which represents your body, that through your broken body you created a body of people, that belong to each other, and help us to take that more seriously and it to affect us more deeply today than it has before. We pray in Jesus' name.